Welcome to the Real Housewives of Humanities podcast, where reality TV can't escape reality. On this show, we talk to experts and Real Housewives fans about social justice issues and theories that end up in the franchises. Can the Real Housewives be a catalyst of change, or do they cause more harm than good? I'm your host, Basil Soper, and today's topic is classism. rejected the $700 billion bailout plan, sending shockwaves through Wall Street. We're now down 43%. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? The worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. During the 2008-2009 economic crisis, a new franchise of The Real Housewives gained immense popularity as viewers admired the luxurious lifestyles of six wealthy New York City socialites. I never feel guilty about being privileged. As many of us are aware, the focus of the housewives is on their extravagant spending habits rather than how they acquired their wealth. Examples of this in New York were things like owning summer houses in the Hamptons, discussing private plane sizes, enrolling children in high-priced preschools with nutritionists, and going on extended vacations to St. Bart's. Going out with these girls is like going through a 12-step program. Starts with drinks, and it goes to hotels, that go to the party, that go to the after party, that go to the VIP room. And if you're lucky- Also in 2008, the franchise's first predominantly black cast was released to the public as well. The Real Housewives of Atlanta performed even better than Roni. For those of you not familiar, that's The Real Housewives of New York. And the show weaved class into race. While each installment of the show shares specific characteristics, the Atlanta franchise did something special for Black women that other cities couldn't replicate, with Atlanta being a hub for Black culture and influence in America. The show's initial success was undoubtedly due to the bare-bones cast of five that consisted of two standout cast members, Nene Leakes and her nemesis, Kim Zoliak. Nene offered viewers a sort of pull-yourself-up-from-your-bootstrap storyline. She grew up in the lower middle class of Athens, Georgia. Kim Zoliak, however, well, she was the epitome of white trash, whose money all came from an unknown married man she called Big Papa. In the show's first season as her tagline, Nene makes it clear to the world that she is the standard for everyone else to follow. I don't keep up with the Joneses. I am the Joneses. The Joneses is a phrase that refers to a white family who's achieved a high level of social affluence, typically in the upper echelon of class. And through researching this episode, I learned that The Joneses was originally a comic strip created in 1913 that sort of poked fun at people's desire to keep up with other people's successes. People in real life and in the comic tried to emulate The Joneses' spending habits in social circles in order to present themselves as a part of the same social class. Today, The Joneses have a new name, The Real Housewives. After Nene single-handedly made a name for the show, other notable housewives joined the cast. Candy Burris, a producer who wrote TLC's No Scrubs and an ex-member of the R&B group Escape, and Kenya Moore, the second Black Miss USA winner ever, were brought onto the show's second season. Cynthia Bailey, an ex-supermodel, was added to the show in season three, only further cementing the show's success. While the first few seasons of The Real Housewives of Atlanta potentially broke the traditional and more harmful archetypes of Black women in media, they were still forced to find a balance between being themselves, entertaining white audiences, and working for a white establishment. Over the years, it seemed that as society has matured, so has the dialogue around whiteness on these shows. The Real Housewives of Potomac, which features an all-Black cast, aired in 2016. Within a few seasons, they were able to dive into conversations around colorism, 
While just over a decade earlier, discussions of racism on the Atlanta series were portrayed as uncomfortable, and they didn't really happen that often. The dialogue around class on these shows, however, has not expanded. So how is that during years where Americans face severe job and financial losses, the Real Housewives, whose main objective is consumption, achieved record ratings? How is it that our country's middle class has continued to shrink over the last 15 years and the globe was ravaged by COVID-19, all while The Real Housewives has remained popular and new franchises have even formed? Nobel laureate economist John Harsani said in 2009 that, quote, apart from economic payoffs, social status seems to be the most important incentive and motivating force of social behavior. The more obvious status disparities are, the more concerned with status people become. And the difference between the haves and the have-nots started to become very clear in the last 15 years in America. Interestingly enough, up to 87% of Americans identify as middle class. But in reality, the middle class sits at around 50%. While social class status is based on the economy, social class identity is based on our own self-perceptions and the judgments we make about others. Basically, We don't know that we're not good enough until someone tells us. So if we're a country that self-identifies in social classes by comparing ourselves to others, then it kind of makes sense that people in the middle class are infatuated by the real housewives. Many of the shows are speckled with classist terms like white trash, poor, low class, and others. The women on the show constantly put each other down over how much wealth they do or do not have. The interesting side of the name-calling is that it also seems to burst the bubble of what makes something considered high class. It's as if the show gives viewers a glimpse into the social rules surrounding what's considered tasteful or stylish, and how those ideas and constraints were sort of made up on a whim by a rich person. Where you live, You look good! What is this, honey? Honey, I was in tears almost. And it has a white refrigerator. I was like, oh, oh, not a white refrigerator. Girl, please put your shoes on. You know, these flippant class moments are pretty funny to witness because as a viewer, they don't feel pointed at you. The gatekeeping is clearly based in a place of insecurity and a need to maintain power. The Real Housewives put the upper class on a similar playing field as middle class people. And viewers love to hate them for being so out of touch and often incompetent. So comparing yourself to their abundance, you know, really doesn't sting as much. The Real Housewives' success also shows us that as a country, we aspire to be rich. And I say this because authentic reality television about low-income people doesn't exist in the same way. And when it does, it's ridiculed. Let's think of TLC's Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. The Thompson family, who stars on the show, lived in Georgia and was considered to be a group of crass people who were obsessed with child beauty pageants and were subsequently fat-shamed and made fun of for being poor by society. One critic in the Washington Times called Honey Boo Boo's family, quote, stupid, lazy, and hopeless. What's wild is the women in The Real Housewives flip tables, call one another terrible names, get into physical fights, treat service workers like dirt, starve themselves, and are obsessed with Botox. While a reality show based around poverty is seen as hopeless, the housewives are seen as luxurious and entertaining. The family on Here Comes Honey Boo Boo came off as playful and unashamed of their circumstances, while the housewives won't allow themselves to ever seem slightly out of control of their capital, both fiscally and socially. Flannery O'Connor once said, quote, anything that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the Northern reader. 
unless it is grotesque, in which case it's going to be called realistic. And I bring this quote up because it feels like the standards put on to people with less money are pretty high. While if you're rich, the moral standards for your existence and behavior is much lower and is seen as entertaining and maybe even something someone might want to attain one day. What really comes through on the shows is that they feature people who have fraught relationships with money and they all seem to be pretty miserable. Some housewives live beyond their means. For example, Dorit Kemsley of Beverly Hills or Bryn Whitfield of New York, who are blatantly and intriguingly maneuvering their way into the elite class. Those who do possess wealth, such as Kyle Richards from Beverly Hills or Potomac's Candace Dillard, can't use their money to escape the underlying dysfunction of their lives or their families. Which, despite housewives' best attempts to come off as functional, usually surfaces, such as the iconic moment in season one where Kyle publicly revealed her sister Kim's battle with alcoholism. And on Potomac, we see that Candace's mother raised her using verbal abuse, which rockets out of Candace when she's triggered on the show. I'm a very mean girl of you, and I responded to what you said. She called the house I bought for my children a teardown and a $900,000 cabin. If somebody says something to Candace that she does not like, she automatically goes for the worst thing she could possibly go for in your life. I'm not trying to argue with you. I don't want to argue either because, again, I can not here to say that I apologize. Okay. That's why I wanted That's to That's very end. nice. It was not for The housewives on most franchises will stoop to sad antics to embarrass each other around money. A few seasons in, there were rumors that Karen, or the Grand Dame of Potomac, lost her home and she was renting in the area. Her co-stars Giselle and Robin went as far as to dress up as undercover pizza delivery people to try and find out if this was true, just to expose Karen as a renter and not a homeowner on the show. As these scenes are etched into viewers' memories, the housewives' distorted perception of wealth suggests that class can be deceptive. Does society at large need to see gaudy, unhappy, and salacious versions of the rich in order to feel okay about not being rich? Does it offer a way to dehumanize the country's 1%? To answer some of these questions, we have Christine Sweeney here today. She's an expert on representation in the media, and she's here to discuss the intersection of class status and the Real Housewives with us. Christine, welcome to the show. So I've always been really interested in taking TV series in particular and pulling out the social themes and looking at how media serves as either a mirror of society, a two-way mirror of society rather. Does it reflect reality or does reality reflect media? And I've always been interested in these questions. What do you usually focus on in your work? So more recently, I've gotten into creating sort of audio collages and taking found media from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, after having researched more current themes and immediately following the 2016 elections, looking at representation in political communication, I've moved more into the creative side of sort of mining old advertisements and media interviews with celebrities, putting them together, mixing in music. And so that's sort of another arm of what I've been working on recently. 
The United States has a fascination with reality TV, and often that class is very much a part of that. Would you be interested in kind of drawing a comparison between the work that you did around Donald Trump and the housewives here? Yeah, absolutely. So for better or for worse, I happen to be very intensely studying representations of political figures in media immediately following the 2016 election and looking at how media came into play in terms of voters, citizens, seeing candidates in media and what that means. And in talking about this episode and thinking about the role particularly of reality TV, reality TV figures, and how we form our aspirations, you know, as viewers, I thought of this research that was done at the University of Wisconsin. And actually, this was before the 2016 elections. And it was looking at perceptions of Donald Trump among uh, those who were polled. And there was this sort of response of among working class respondents that somebody like Donald Trump or other reality TV stars. That's someone they would aspire to be like. This is someone who has worked hard. You know, they, they portray this American dream. You know, you see their work up on TV, on the screen of, oh, they were an executive. They ran a company. It's a very clear example of how hard work can get you wealth. Different from, you know, this feeling of class distinction of, say, what's often referred to as the coastal elite or these professional classes, doctors, lawyers, who are successful, but it seems to come from this place of privilege, of attending the best schools and then having these professional positions influencing politics. And I think to these respondents, there's this idea that you can attain success through this perceived work ethic of climbing the corporate ladder, which is more approachable or more accessible, seeing someone like Donald Trump versus, say, a lawyer or a doctor. And so there's this distinction. And so you see this power of this figure, you know, in reality TV, who you can see this and some might call it even a, you know, we talk about context collapse, right? Of seeing someone claiming to have come from nothing and then they have a successful business without the context of privilege. So I just find that to be an interesting theme that runs through reality TV. Do you believe that that type of archetype that we see in reality TV is a you know, eventually just what got Donald Trump elected? I think it is. I mean, we have this concept of popularity contest and... It's real. It's it's somebody who seems more familiar, for better or for worse. When you feel like you know someone based on their platform, in this case, reality TV, you know, you see this also obviously in Real Housewives. It feels like you know these women intimately. You see their families, you see how they live, you see what you believe to be their friendships. And yeah, it's this closeness. So you can you can see the appeal of a reality TV star versus, say, you know, somebody who has maybe worked within policy, worked within politics, or other areas that don't necessarily give you the same intimate look at their lives. If we zoom out a little bit and look at class status as a whole and how it shows up, do you think that reality TV speaks on a more meta way? to the American drive to get rich and believe that they just can if you just work hard enough, the quote-unquote American dream, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think the American dream and television and reality TV 
those three go hand in hand. And actually, I was looking at some numbers on this. Uh, there was a YouGov poll recently that showed something like 61% of Americans believe in the American dream, just the, the concept of the American dream that everyone has opportunities to reach their goals and build a comfortable life. Then you have about 41% overall believe that that is reasonably attainable. Of course, that changes when you look at race. So it's something like close to 70% of white Americans believe it to be attainable. But then when you look at black respondents, it's a third, you know, believe the American dream to be attainable. And so with this belief in this concept that there's this dream, there's this lifestyle that everyone has the opportunity to reach so strong in the United States, this enduring American dream. And then you look at television consumption, something like 55% of Americans watch at least one hour of TV per day. And it's a quarter of Americans, which is still pretty significant, watch four hours or more of TV per day. So with that you know, strength of both media in the United States as a way of reaching people, coming into people's screens, you know, not only it used to be oh, coming into people's homes through the television. I mean, this is coming into people's pockets, you know, being able to watch TV on their phones. That is significant. So you have one, a, a common, a shared belief in the American dream to, uh, you know, a very strong, common platform that is media. And then reality TV is almost kind of marrying those two, being able to continue to portray this concept of the American dream of, as you say, like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You see these themes throughout Real Housewives in terms of, you know, women who maybe came from nothing, they built businesses. This is a theme that you see throughout the, the seasons. And as we know, a lot of the Real Housewives behavior isn't great. You know, there's harmful things said, people get into physical altercations, people can be very petty. Do you think that the representation of the rich in reality is helping people maybe not see wealth as something that they necessarily desire or want to or need to have? Or do you think it just continues to fuel that desire? You know, maybe it's a little bit of both. There is something very appealing to see these lives on television. And I think what's unique about reality TV than, say, media before the you know, predominance of reality TV coming in at the turn of the millennium is, you know, it used to be celebrities you saw. So these are the chosen few, uh, the actors who made it to the big screen. And folks looked up to these celebrities, but at the same time, there was this understanding that they are not necessarily ordinary people. They, this is their career, they're actors, they're on the screen, them versus us. I think with reality TV, you have this collapse between those entities and this idea that anyone can have that lifestyle. Anyone can access those worlds. So even if your reality is not the reality you're seeing on TV, there is this, I don't know if hope's the right word, but it's like an access to it, a possibility that you could have that. And I think that's what's so captivating about reality TV for so many 
Bethany Frankel used to be on The Real Housewives of New York, and she's recently been coming out and trying to, like, basically unionize Bravo and get rights for reality TV show workers or performers. And so this is kind of a larger question. We are kind of at a moment of reckoning with labor rights in the United States, and a lot of that comes down to finance and being paid appropriately and being paid what you're worth. Do you foresee that inserting itself into the mainstream media of something like Real Housewives eventually? You know, I do see that as a possibility when you look at what the writer's strike has done recently, a show art is valuable. Art is not only valuable, but it is what is making money for so many media companies. And we need to, you know, we're looking at where do those profits go? Like, who is getting paid for what? And I think what the writer's strike has shown is that the folks who are creating the stories, who are writing, you know, what we see on the screen, they have not been valued. Their work has not been valued. So you could sort of follow this line of reasoning and look at, well, reality TV stars, anyone on screen, this is work. This is, you could argue, you know, the degree of creative work. Reality TV is reality, but it is scripted in many cases. So I think there are some similarities to be made at looking at the compensation or the monetary value of the work that reality TV stars do. Do you think overall reality TV is more negative or positive on uh, its effect on society, um, particularly in the realm of class? I think that there is something to going back to the American dream. What many would critique about the American dream is that, you know, the reality is that you look at, say, business ownership in the United States. 20% are owned by people of color in the United States. 6.3% of businesses are black owned. Do you look at you know, millionaires in the United States, only 8% of millionaires, you know, this immense wealth that's in the United States are black. You look at venture capital, 1% of venture capital goes to black founders. So looking at the reality of the numbers of actually attaining wealth, you know, in the United States, it's a very different story to how it is portrayed via the American dream of anybody can access this lifestyle, this degree of wealth that we see so often in reality TV. So I think when you have this dissonance between the reality of the numbers and the way that wealth is distributed in the U.S. versus how it's portrayed in most reality TV, you know, it's it's important to understand the difference. And, you know, that's not to say all reality TV is bad. I think everybody could use, you know, a degree of media literacy of understanding You know, this is not, say, a a full-on documentary. You know, it it lacks a lot of context for portraying everyday lives and even the realities of the people that are on screen. So I think that with any piece of media, having the literacy to just simply understand, you know, who is creating it and what context is it being created, I think is important for everyone. Is there anything that, you know, when we came to you about this that you wanted to talk about that I haven't hit on? Well, I think when we look at class, there are so many, you know, general themes to be brought out of 
Real Housewives overall. I love this point about what does it mean to be a housewife and going back to, you know, say the, the privilege, for example, of what it means to be a housewife, you know, historically, a, a woman who was at home and not working, not earning income. And so in some ways, Real Housewives is turning that on its head, right? Because you have, you know, in this way, it could be revolutionary, at least in questioning this very sort of standard archetype. You know, these are people who have been divorced. These are people who are the main breadwinners. You know, these are people who have many different experiences, but they could still identify as, say, a housewife. And what does that mean? Going back to this term, housewife, the privilege that that includes, you know, predominantly, you know, historically, these were white middle-class women who did, you know, were able to live within these very heteronormative family structures without contributing paid income. Not to mention the fact that their labor, their domestic labor was unpaid. Yes, that's definitely something I've thought about and how even then when white middle class women were housewives, they still probably had domestic workers who were predominantly black. And currently today, a lot of Latino women are domestic laborers. And something that's interesting about domestic labor in our country is they don't have the same labor rights that we have in the United States. So everyone who has labor protection, such as like time off or breaks or not going to work in an unsafe place, like those don't exist for domestic workers. And that's because when we made labor rights in the United States, domestic workers were predominantly black women. And they were like, we're not giving them equal rights. And still to this day, 2023, we're fighting to get those things. And and so, yeah, even just being a housewife in a traditional sense that was much more patriarchal and maybe unsatisfying, still had this like privilege embedded into it, which is something I don't know if I, I thought about as thoroughly until even just speaking to you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, even with these considerations, I think producers of Real Housewives could easily hold up and say, well, look, we've had entire seasons that are all women of color. You know, we've shown, and you know, some of them work and some of them don't work. And, and you know, ho holding up these examples, which, you know, again, are the exception, you know, to the overall sort of a more general experience in the United States, which is this, again, this difference between like reality and TV reality. Talking about domestic workers and different classes of workers, particularly in Real Housewives of New York, the current season, I just think of Erin Lishi, who's one of the characters who works in real estate, you know, comes from a wealthy family, comes from a family business of developers, real estate. And there are clips of her interacting with folks working, doing repairs, construction work in her properties. And she often, she will speak Spanish, like you see these interactions she has. And, you know, seeing the way the Real Housewives interact, I think, with different classes in the show, different working classes, is something notable. Whereas, yeah, sometimes it seems maybe in other seasons, there's sort of an invisibility to different folks. What do you think? Yeah, I've seen it, people being straight up rude and dismissive of either people in service work or in domestic work. And then there are certain 
franchises that are a little less like in Salt Lake City I've noticed so I worked in service work from like age 13 to 30 so like I notice when people are nice to a server and in Salt Lake City they're really kind to the the servers and like domestic workers who they have around they think about them they talk about them they're just like less pretentious I guess in that way but there are certain franchises where Part of being rich and like having this class status is to be unkind to people who are not or who are serving you. And I, yeah, it, it is really cool that Aaron speaks Spanish too. Like, not centering English is so monumental when it shouldn't be. It has been used as a way to showcase power, you know, being mean to these people. And it's a bummer, but I think it's getting a little better. You have to wonder, like, with the revolution of reality TV, it's been around so long. Maybe there's almost like a growing self-awareness among reality TV stars of how certain behaviors could look. And, you know, I think there would be a difference in somebody's treatment to another human being, you know, say in service work versus, you know, the women just sort of amongst themselves getting tipsy, gossipy, this treatment among themselves versus how they interact with people who aren't in the cast. Then you can see that difference in terms of how they're portrayed. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think that the Real Housewives franchises lack in financial diversity? And if the show's focused more on women who don't come from money or have a lot of money, would the shows be as successful? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially to think about, like, what is a real housewife? Like, even the the title, the original title from when it, the show first aired in the early 2000s, you know, is this a real housewife? What is a real housewife? And I think there are many, probably the majority of, of women across the United States who would identify as, say, a housewife. Uh, would say, no, that's not my life. You know, that's not my experience. I don't have, you know, I don't have childcare. I don't, have, you know, wear $10,000 gowns. And, you know, it's this question of, well, what do people want to see? You know, and, and I think going back to the American dream again and the power of reality TV in general and media is this sense of what is aspirational, you know, and what's so appealing about what is aspirational is there is this possibility that is attainable. So do we, do we want to see ourselves portrayed as we are or do we want to see <laughs> ourselves portrayed as what we could be, right. I think is the question. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, social, thinking about social media, social media, maybe that's what we see that's relatable, right? You see influencers, well, there's different kinds of influencers, but you do see like rises in, you know, parents say who are trying to show the real side of parenting who become popular. Uh, so maybe in some weird ways, social media is our more real reality TV. And then we get to aspire um, to a slightly more glamorous life through the reality TV we see on the screen. Mm. So yes, do you watch The Real Housewives? What are your favorite franchises if you do? And if you don't, do you watch any reality TV and why? I have definitely dipped in and out of Real Housewives. But I have to say, like most recently, I do find this latest season particularly interesting with the introduction of Jenna Lyons as the first out queer person on Real Housewives and looking at how that sort of stirs the pot of, you know, bringing this figure in. 
So that has been interesting to watch, I think, in reality TV. But I wouldn't call myself a devoted fan, but I am I am I'm interested in it and its significance. I think it's fascinating of like what we're exposed to through media and and the pressure to, you know, aspire to certain styles, how you portray yourself, ways of living that were so heavily influenced by media. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You've been amazing. This has been a great conversation and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you, Basil. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a delight. The Real Housewives of Humanities is written and hosted by me, Basil Soper. The show's producer is Michaela Reed. We want to thank Christine once again for being on the show. Thank you also to our Patreon supporters like Sam Hoffman, Jessica Bond, and Ricardo Montez. If you'd like to support our work, please go to patreon.com slash R-H-O-H podcast. That's patreon.com slash R-H-O-H podcast. The show is currently recorded in my bedroom closet in Brooklyn, New York, so any support is helpful. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in to future episodes of The Real Housewives of Humanities. 